end of the eight ball live. Anthony, thank you for coming on. Of course, thanks for having me. Yeah, so um, I guess just to kind of follow up on what we just, uh, we just touched on interviews. So I actually wanted to ask you, because I didn't know you used to do, um, you pretty much did um, software engineering your entire career, but when you do interviews, what's like your game plan? Like, would, do you have like a framework or like a game plan of how you usually prepare for your coding interviews? Um, yeah, so it's a little interesting, but I've prepared in like two different points in my life. So I would say there's like interviewing when you're in college and then there's interviewing when you're a professional. So I've done both. So it's kind of, it's very similar to the way you prepare and it's kind of, you kind of hear about it. There, there are books about it and there are definitely a lot of blog posts and, and kind of there's always like this unwritten just rumor of like how you do it. So basically I would say the overall strategy when you're software engineering is you do a lot of lead code and hacker ink, which are basically like online problems, like brain twisters that involve a lot of like programming and just like you do these very like short, they're not like long projects, but they're more like these problems that are only supposed to take you an hour or so to do. So I would say like a lot of your interviewing is just doing a bunch of those and then reviewing books like Cracking the Coding Interview, which is basically like a condensed version of what you learn in maybe your first two like computer science courses. Now, did you did you read um, How to Crack the Coding Interview? Yeah, I, I skimmed it. I would say, luckily, a lot of that was still fresh on my mind because I was only like a year or so removed from college when I started looking for another job. But it was definitely, I would say, I used it a lot more in college where there were some things that when I started interviewing for jobs, I was like like a year or so removed from the classes. And I was like, at the time when I took those classes, I didn't know how important that information was gonna be, like learning uh, algorithms, learning all about data structures, runtime, big O notation. Like I, at the time, I didn't realize how important that was gonna be later on. I, I didn't really know when I took those classes what interviewing was gonna be like or what it was gonna be like to look for a job. I thought it was gonna be a lot more behavioral interviews or companies would be like, oh, is this person like a good fit? Like, do we wanna have them for the summer? I wasn't, when I took those classes, I wasn't really that prepared for like, oh, like basically everything I'm learning in this class is gonna be all the stuff I do for the interviews. So I, I definitely spent a lot more time when I was younger reading the book. And I think a lot of that information just kind of carried over to now where every now and then I'm like, oh yeah, I remember how to solve this. Isn't it crazy that what you do in the coding interviews has literally nothing to do with like the actual work you do? Yeah, that's like one of my biggest complaints. I always feel bad like at Goldman when I would do interviews or I would listen in, I would just like, we'd look at this person's resume, they're stacked and like, you know, we'd ask some feelers or we'll talk about something in the JavaScript world or something about a library we don't like. And then as soon as we get to like, the, like coding part of it it's just so irrelevant that we lose a lot of good people or like I, I usually notice I'm like oh this person like they didn't read cracking the coding interview or they haven't been doing these problems so they're not, not familiar with like how you approach it how you talk about it like how you communicate with us like when you ask for help what kind of help we can give you like that's always a big bummer because it, it isn't like it's, it's nowhere near the type of collaboration or just environment or the type of things you actually do like on a like at your job on a day-to-day -day basis so it's just just so weird then it's like if you don't prepare if you don't practice if you don't study up you're gonna have a difficult time nailing those interviews or like making a good impression on like the rubric we have that we look at while we're interviewing you i know and the thing about it is like i guess like the best way i would would you say it's pretty much just like an iq test you have to prepare like two or three months in advance yeah i wouldn't say it's an iq test i would just it, it's more so like how well how well you study and how well you practice that you see a lot of different problems that you sort of start building like oh like you know if i see this problem like i gotta think oh it has to do with a map or it's a sorting or it's a sorting problem oh or it's a problem that's asking me to do dynamic programming so i have to like cache a lot of the searching i'm doing you just you just kind of do a lot of the problems in those two to three months that you sort of you start you start to categorize problems as soon as you read it or as soon as like we ask you something that's maybe a follow-up like you ask us a question it's like what are we optimizing for or what are some of the edge cases we'll tell you some of that and then you'll be like oh yeah this reminds me of this problem and that sort of gives you a good like position of where to start so like if you haven't been studying like i can give you all these tips i can give you all these follow-up like questions to like i can give you follow-up answers to your questions but like if you haven't been studying it's not going to be that helpful or beneficial to you 
in your opinion, what do you think is the hardest type of problems? Like dynamic programming, would you say? Uh, for me, it's definitely graph or tree problems. Really? I don't know. Those, those can be, yeah, those, especially if they put them in word problems, those aren't always the most they're not always the most clear. Like you'll kind of read it and you'll be like, Oh, like this is like, like I, I could do this using a for loop or something, or like I'll do some. So you, you, there's, there's so many different ways they can wear those problems that you'll start going in an entirely different direction. And then you'll realize at one point you're like, Oh, like, like you'll start, you'll start with nodes and you'll start like creating like <laughs> arrows and stuff. And then you're like, Oh wait, this is a graph problem. Like, Oh, I just wasted so much time trying to figure that out. Oh, those yeah. problems would be the hardest. And just for me, I, I remember even in school, I had problem with like grasping basically the basic, like abstract subject of it. But you usually really don't get those questions unless you're like, like interviewing a list of like Amazon or like some like top tech companies, right? Like a bank would never ask you that, right? Usually I mean, I mean, no, they, they tend, I would say that definitely big tech companies, like it's a lot harder to interview and like the questions are a lot more vigorous and they tend to test this, but sometimes it really depends on your interviewer. Like the way it works is we have like a list of questions that we're allowed to ask you. And maybe some people always stick with the top three, but you know, you'll probably have maybe a senior engineer, like some very distinguished engineer who's like, oh, you know what? I haven't done a graph problem in a while. Like it'd be kind of fun to see if this person knows what they're doing. And then like, you know, I'd also be able to brush up on it a little bit. Cause for some engineers, it's, it's like also like, it's like an exercise for us as well. Like the interviews are supposed to be collaborative or like that's the way they're supposed to be. And sometimes people don't take them that way. But a lot of times the interview is like, how well do you work? Like how well are you at like problem solving? How well are you of figuring out obscurities and just kind of clearing things up so we can find a solution? That is, it, it tends to, I think some of the better interviews tend to be where I'm feeding off their energy and they're feeding off mine. They're asking me questions. I'm like, I'm either telling them, I'm either clearing up the problem they're having or I'm like, giving them like other alternatives to think about with my questions. Is there ever a scenario, because you said it is an exercise, is, is there ever a scenario where the interviewer doesn't really know the answer to? Um, yes, I would say that uh, like a lot of times HR, the people in charge of uh, the interviews tell you to prepare, like pick some of these questions, like have them ready and like look it over. But every now and then, like, you know, like a lot of us still have day jobs. Like, you know, I never know when like something could break and burn. And then I have to like, like, bef like maybe I normally do like half an hour before the interview. I like, I look over the question, make sure I understand the answer make sure I have some like follow-up questions already in mind. But like, if, if I'm really busy that day and I can't do the half hour preparation, I may come in a little more, not as helpful, a little more like, oh, like what was the answer again? Like, or like, what is the, what is the answer to like the, the my follow-up questions? So I don't know, it varies, but they tend to recommend that you be like prepared for whatever when it comes to these interviews and that it, it's, it works a lot better if you know the answer going in and, and what kind of solutions are accepted. That'd be so awkward if you were the interviewer and didn't know what the answer was. During right. Yeah. But I wanted to ask you, so I'm just curious, what would, how would you say the experience as a software engineer as an intern differs from a full-time position? I would say when I was an intern, there were like, so I, the company I work at now is different from the company I interned at. And so I, I have a feeling the internships vary by company and sort of the expectations are, but I, I will preface it with, I left the company I interned at. Like I went back there full time and only stayed, I stayed less than two years before I switched companies. But basically my whole feeling was that when I was an intern, the company went above and beyond having events, having networking events, like just kind of exposing us to a side of the firm that you never actually get exposed to again when you go full time. So I think my internship was a lot more fun and it felt a lot more professional and I feel like it was a lot more intellectually stimulating and there was just a lot of things going on that I was like, oh, I like, like, I like how many people I can meet, like I like how flexible my work is, I like how flexible my managers are that I was sort of given a different perspective on how a job would be, like how working nine to five would be at like a company. So then when I came full time, there's less events, less networking, and you're more like, you're supposed to get your stuff done. Like if you get your stuff done, then maybe there's networking stuff, maybe there's other events, but it's always like, you're kind of expected to be at your desk for like the whole 10 hours you're in the office and like you're expected to produce so I would say that was like the weird realization, but like now being at a different company, I know that's not always the case. It's very dependent on your organization, the culture that your managers have for you. 
but I will say that a lot of companies tend to go above and beyond for interns and like it's up like it's hard to get good talent when you're like an engineering company because there's so many like top engineering companies like they're giving you amazing pay that like you can't really differentiate the companies based on pay a lot of times. So it's like, what other things can they give you? Can they like stimulate you intellectually? Can they give you like cool stuff like a game room? Can they give you free food? Can they give you like managers who are like distinguished outside the company? Like at Google, we have like the creator of like GitHub works there. And that's like one of the biggest draws is like, you know, your manager could be this like person who created some technology you use or that technology is so popular. So there's a lot of different things that companies use to kind of, pitch you the perks of working at that company when you're an intern. So I, I definitely feel you feel like a lot more valued and you're like, ooh, like I get to pick and choose like when you're an intern. That's so interesting you say that. And I think one of the, um, the interesting things about especially software engineers is that the, um, the work-life balance is like so much better relative to other jobs and the pay. I think, what was, I think like maybe a couple years ago, the average salary for a software engineer was exactly 100K, which is pretty crazy to think that the hours aren't that bad. I mean, sometimes you know, I hear some companies let um, some of the workers get out sometimes four when they, they don't have that much to do like during a certain point of time, which is pretty interesting. It's a good life balance. Yeah. I, I know like for me, like doing engineering at Goldman Sachs, which is like an investment bank, like my friends who were on the business side were working twice, two and a half times what I was like. They'd come in on the weekends. They would... Software engineers? No, uh... Investment bank. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So they'd be working the weekends. They'd be working like nine to midnight or whatever the hours are. And I would be like, I, I would be at, at. They would like message me, and I'd be like, dude, I've been home for like six hours now. Like, I believe it. There is um. I remember reading an article a couple years ago about this um Bank of America intern. She worked three days straight without um without sleep, and she passed away apparently. Something yeah. Crazy, like that. The hours for investment banking are absurd. Yeah, I would say it's definitely a culture thing. I don't know. I like I, for my time working at investment bank, I'm still not. I wasn't really convinced that it was like reasonable for people to be working those hours. I just feel like it was either up to poor management or just keeping up the toxic culture that makes investment banking like what it is. Kind of one of those things where like I went through it, and now you have to go through it. I feel like it's a lot of that. But luckily, engineering is like nothing like that. It was like it was like almost pretty similar like to what you find at any other tech company, from like my experience. I think for tech companies or tech in general, they do a nice job of kind of like reeling in talent. Like you notice, um, like if you look for, if you try to look for some investment banking, like pre-internship programs, you'll probably find like one. But you look it up for tech, there's like, um, I think you did the early bird camp at Twitter. There's uh, Capital One has a few, Goldman Sachs has a few. I think it's just a lot better. So I was just curious as to how, how important do you think especially if you don't have any experience um, in tech, if you want to be a software engineer, to have those, like, that experience? Um, I definitely think it's, like, important or, like, it's good to have. I don't think it's necessary, and I don't think it's, like, a make it break. Like, I, like if you can't get that, I wouldn't stress about it. Like, it's nothing. Like, it's just it, – what I noticed is that it tends to be a conversation starter between people when they're like, oh, what is that? Like, it's not really an internship, but what is that? And – so I wouldn't say I wouldn't say if you don't get it, like don't worry, it's not the end of the world. Like nothing, like it's not going to impact you in any way. But it is like a conversation starter, and it is like an extra bullet point on your resume that is somewhat relevant. But I definitely liked my time at Twitter, like the two weeks I was there, just because like growing up, I come from like a blue collar home, so I knew nothing about Silicon Valley. Like I knew nothing about engineering, like outside of like. Pro, like two week projects and like you know just being in TA hours like I feel like I had a very like very non non-diverse view on engineering like I was just like oh like you know what like I work on something for two weeks finish that and then I work on something else that being at Twitter I just got a lot more perspective I like got to see what the different roles are I didn't know you could do like front-end engineering back-end engineering database management site reliability like there are these all these titles and I was like what yeah. And then I also just didn't realize that the culture was so, like, different. Like, you know, like, it's people making a decent amount of money and, like, working nine to five. But, you know, I was just so used to, like, wearing a suit and tie to the office or, like, you know, just having to wear some, like, business casual clothing. And, like, that's how you were supposed to be. And here I was going to this big tech company in San Francisco. And some dude is wearing, like, ripped skinny jeans, Yeezys, and, like, a whale t-shirt. And I was like, what the heck? 
Rip and then not to mention the free food. Like my the, when I walked into the Twitter building, I got my like security badge, which I thought was like weird. I was like security badge, and then it's like as soon as I walked in, it's like a huge cafeteria with like all you can eat like buffet, just a spread. And it was just the craziest, like, I was like, I, I wasn't sure what I was expecting. I mean, I heard the rumors and I heard these things, but it definitely felt like I was in, like, school or, like, I was in this, like, very prestigious, like, university and they were just whining, dining me. And then it was just so weird that I was also, like, doing work as well. And I was somewhat, like, productive. Like, for some reason, I found it in me that all the perks and benefits, I was like, oh, that's all cool, but, like, I'm still here to work and stuff. I don't even know. It was, like, it was, it was the coolest experience for sure. And it opened up my eyes and it definitely kind of sold computer science a lot more to me where I was like, this could be my life after college. Like, this isn't that bad. Like here I was thinking I'd have to wear like a suit and tie to work every day, work nine to nine and like, you know, kind of be like, have a boring life and just be like, ah. So I don't know, it was a good eye opener. And I really liked the experience that that gave me. And like I said, it also gave me a resume like point, which I thought was like a, like an extra like brownie point for that. Of course. So you're not a big suit and tie guy? um I, I so it's funny because my dad so my parents are blue collars like they don't they don't have careers they have like regular jobs my dad's been in the food business his whole life as like a chef and a manager then like running his own like small businesses but i don't know they, they were like we just want you to have a career where you can wear like a suit and tie to work and it's like you know you have that and it's like you don't really have to worry about different seasons or finding different jobs so my dad was always like i want you to wear a suit and tie to work and I originally was going to college to be an accountant. I was going to go really? to business school and major in accounting. But the school I eventually went to college for didn't have a business school. So I guess it was a win-win. But, yeah, I, I don't know. It was like it was like it was something I was fine with. And then when I became a computer scientist, a software engineer, and I was exposed to, like, Silicon Valley, I was like, yeah, like, I didn't even want to wear a suit and tie. Like, I would do that maybe to make money. But, like, now that I know I can make money and not have to do that, like, that's way more chill. And that's more my vibe. What kind of uh, food did that cook? Uh, all different kinds. Like he, he started working in a kitchen when he was like 14, 14, 15 as like a dishwasher, moved his way up. He used to be in Mexican restaurants. He was in four-star Italian restaurants. And then he started owning like smaller like Italian restaurants in like different parts of Massachusetts. And then it was a little too stressful and then with the economic downturn of like 2008, 2009, he kind of stepped away from all of it. And then now he just works at like a kind of the head chef at one of the local university like dining commons there you go but um did you did you always know you wanted to be a software engineer or did you just take a course and then you just got interested um, the first time i took a computer science course i was in high school and it was sort of a senior year blow-off course and i absolutely hated it it was in python my teacher was like reading from a book she didn't really know computer science or she did a poor job of explaining what it was and basically the class was like us writing like a basic like chat box that you would hard code responses to like regular, like really simple, like string regexes. I don't know, a lot of that information just flew by and I had no idea what was going on, but it, it was like my senior year and it was just like relatively chill class to take with like all the other AP classes and stuff I was taking. Then I went to college and I originally went as like economics and like math because we didn't have accounting and we didn't have finance and the closest thing we had to finance was this double major of economics and math where you take some more financial theory courses but basically it was like it was sort of a one of our most i would say practical like course selections that would kind of get you a job in wall street or get you a job at like what you would consider like high paying jobs to be so i was i was i initially started down that path but after i took a few economics courses i hated it i was drawing all these supply demand curves. I was like, what does this have to do with trading stocks? Like, how do you make money from this stuff? And it was like, I don't know, it was, it was a lot more of a academics, economic focus. And I could definitely, I definitely had the feeling that a lot of the stuff we were learning was more for us to do research or just more research into the theory and just be kind of theorists about like economics. Um, but then I, I luckily, like my friend group freshman year, a lot of them were engineers and they all graduated as engineers. But at my school, like at Brown University, in order to get your engineering requirement, you have to take at least one computer science class. And luckily for me, all my friends were engineers. So I was friends with them when they took that first computer science class. And like, they were doing cool ass stuff. Like they were building Pac-Man, um, Tetris, Doodle Jump. And I was just like, what? Like that's a class? Like you get to do that stuff? I mean, in hindsight, like I thought it was really easy or simple. I was like, oh, like guess you're just building all this stuff. Like I want to learn how to build that. Like I have no idea how you build that stuff. 
So for me, it was just that I could build something that I could play. That was like the big thing for me where I was like, oh, like building games, like that sounds so cool. So I would say that was my introduction was seeing my friends work on different projects that I was like, oh, you can also build games with computer science. Like I didn't know that. I thought all you did with computer science was like scripting and all this like other stuff that was unrelated to games. And then, yeah, the next year I took my first computer science class and then it was it's been history since then. I just I caught a bug and then immediately after the first class I switched my uh, major to computer science. Wow, it just took off. Yeah. But um, Anthony, you so you have you have a lot of interest cuz I I I saw that you you played some club lax at school. So you like yeah. lax, huh? Yeah. Yeah, I played in high school. It was actually uh, – so my extracurriculars were actually sport. I was a big football guy. I played football all three years. I, I like, I lettered a couple years. But then I got concussed my junior year of high school, and then I dropped football. But up until that point, I thought I was like, you know what, I'm going to go to like a D3, D2 school, and I'm going to play football, and then I'm going to get a – like a like a scholarship to play sports and that'll because I, I don't I don't come from money so one of the big things was like how am I going to pay for college mm-hmm. and it wasn't until like I started getting into like Ivy League schools where I was like oh like damn like me having good grades is actually going to pay me to get to college like I, I kind of knew I could get like an academic scholarship but my grades weren't like like I, I didn't have like 4.0 GPA and I wasn't taking like 10 APs my time in high school like I was taking a few a couple and I was definitely challenging myself but I was definitely more of like a sports guy like, one year I played football, basketball, and lacrosse. Like, I was a three-season, like, sport athlete, like, just playing all these different sports. And so I was just kind of known to be just this, like, very athletic person. But I don't know, something something else about me, I was always kind of nerdy, and I was just, like, challenging myself in school that I always – I didn't mind taking AP classes or honor classes. Like, I actually found them really intellectually stimulating, and I, like, enjoyed, like, struggling a little bit through high school. Like, that was a lot of fun, I think, and it definitely kept me, like, entertained and, like, I don't know, like, it, it just, like, enough of my time was spent just doing all these different things, and I was just, like, kind of content with how everything went, but, yeah, I did a lot of sports, I did, and then I, I did a lot of sports in high, in high school, and then we had a club lacrosse team that was, like, easy to get on, like, no one really played lacrosse, or no one wanted to play club lacrosse, so it was, like, I was at, at like, a activities fair at Brown, and they were, like, do you want to, do you want to play, like, have you played before, and I was, like, I was, like, are people on the team that haven't played before? And so it was like half the team had played before and then half the team had never picked up a lacrosse stick before. And we were like the club lacrosse team. We weren't that good, but it was like a lot of fun. And like the, the ones of, the ones who had played, like had like serious experience. Like a lot of us had been playing for like five, six years, maybe even more since we were younger. You ever play baseball at all or no? Um, my dad didn't want me to get into baseball. I don't really know really? why. Yeah, he was just like, I don't think you'll like it. So I didn't, and then I picked up lacrosse. So that was in the spring in Massachusetts. So it, it interfered with baseball, so I never had the chance. But I always I always wish I would have tried it. That and soccer. I wish I would have tried them at least a year. Same. And just would have seen how I felt or how I liked them. You know, the interesting about baseball is that it's one of those sports where if, you, if you've never played it and you go to a game, you think it's like golf. It's like the most, like, boring thing. But if you played it yourself, it's more like a culture thing. Because like you, like if you don't, if you haven't played it, you just see a guy throwing a ball and someone hitting it. But if you played baseball, you see like just a completely different perspective. Like you'll see a pitcher trying to paint the corners, hitting low, trying to hit the inside. Just a completely different perspective. I think that's the interesting about baseball, and I think that's why a lot of people really don't like watching it because they like don't understand like the like you know the little things. Yeah, unfortunate. But um. I wanted to ask you, what do you think, like, if um, if you had to do it over again, like, what would you tell other people, like, or, like, what do you think people should focus on when they're on college? Like, should it be, like, networking, like, trying to get into clubs, like, Greek life, or just, like, just, like, having a good time? Um, yeah, so, from my experience, what I wanted to do was I, I was, like, when I was doing it, I was, like, I need to figure out how I'm going to get a job and what's going to get me a job the fastest, so I was taking maybe classes. I was like, you know what? This seems kind of useful. Or this seems like it would really stand out on my resume. Extracurriculars, definitely when I was like, before I picked up computer science, I was definitely just trying all different clubs. Like I was a part of the investment club. Like I was part of our engineering club. I was doing sports. And it, I was like doing all these different things, just kind of trying to figure out, okay, what do I want to do? Like what is, what am I going to do after college? And I think that was something I came in with because I was like, I was one first gen, so 
I, I didn't know shit. I just came in and I was like, I'm the first person in my family to go to college. Like, I didn't have anyone ask any questions about. So I was just kind of navigating the space on my own, trying to figure it out, trying to figure out what I want to do after. And like, because I was low income, I was like, I, I would prefer not to be low income after I'm giving these four years to just excel at like an elite university like Brown University. So I was just trying all these different things. And I think for some people, like, you know, Greek life is dope. And like, if you have, like, if you're able to join like a fraternity or sorority you like, and you're able to meet people you like, go for it. Like, that's definitely a way to expand your network and maybe get opportunities. But for me, I just, I didn't see a lot of value in it. And I think the culture at Brown was low-key kind of toxic. And I was just kind of like aware of that. And I was like, I don't really want to be associated with something that's low, like toxic. Like I'd rather not be associated with that. And it doesn't, it wasn't, it was, it was just something where I was like, oh, like I'm not that big of a fan of it. And so, yeah, so I was just all over the place. And it wasn't until I was in computer science, I kind of figured out, I was like, I'll have to take these classes and these classes. But the thing about computer science classes is they're like two, three times harder than any other classes. Like I remember my economics class would maybe take me like five, six hours a week. Like it was like I'd read and then I'd do a problem set and I'm done. With the computer science classes, you have to learn the language that class is in, which could be Java, could be Go, could be C++, could be C. Like every semester you're expected to learn a new language for one of these classes. And then you have to figure out what the requirements are for your project. And then you, you start building it and then almost immediately you're going to start running into bugs. You're going to be like, oh, damn, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know like how caching works or, oh, I don't know how to set up like a server or, oh, like I'm, I'm keep getting seg faults. Like what's going on in my code that you, 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 you like start to realize that you're going to have to devote a lot more time to like your classes or your projects, especially the classes that are known to be like really time intensive and like require like a lot of work from you. And that's a problem. So it's what? I was saying that's a problem, right? Because if you're trying to, let's say you have a couple interviews lined up during the week, like with all that work, because it is true, computer science is a very, very time-consuming thing, especially the courses. So how do you set it? How did you set aside time for to make sure you could prepare for your interviews, or is that kind of like inherent in some of the work that you were doing, anyways? Um, I would. I, I mean, in an ideal world, some of the stuff you would be doing would be relevant to interviews. But to be honest, none of it was related in any way. Like I have taken a database class. And I was just doing like very theoretical stuff. Like it was problem sets, but it was like math equations on how the different SQL joins like are calculated and sort of figuring out what the storage constraint and the memory constraint. I mean, sometimes every now and then you'll have an interview with a guy who all he does is databases. So maybe that'll be a good discussion to have, or maybe the guy will think of you and like, or the, the person, like maybe they will think about you in like a really good way. So yeah, but I know most times I had to like either lose a little bit of sleep, stay up a little later, get my like two or three hacker ranks for the night or like my extra chapter, chapter cracking the coding interview. Like, yeah, it, it was, it was tough. It was a struggle, but I, I, I don't know. Like even now I surprised myself. I have no idea how I did it. Looking back at it now we're having a job and I can barely do anything after work cause I'm so tired. Like it was definitely like, once you're on a roll, it's just, it's not easy to pick something else up and be like, you know what? I'm just gonna take like a 20, 30 minute break right now. and like, do a couple problems or I'm going to like try to write out this, like the pseudocode for this algorithm from like straight memory and see if I haven't memorized yet. So I don't know, there's just a bunch of different ways. And I never thought, I never thought preparing for an interview was something you have to do for like five hours straight. For me, it was like, if you can get 15, 20 minutes in at like a couple points in the day, perfect. Like, even if you don't have a computer, like oftentimes, like, well, I mean, now that everything's virtual and remote, I guess doing it on a computer is more beneficial, but when I was interviewing, everything was whiteboarding. Yeah. So like it would be it was better if I could just grab like a pen and paper and I would just ask myself a question, maybe one I memorized, maybe make one up that it's like relatively easier, relatively like, oh, you know what, if I really thought about it, I could solve it. And basically just pen and paper, try to solve a problem or maybe try to, like I said, rewrite an algorithm from scratch or just maybe try to explain the data structure in words, what it does, or maybe list like all the different ways I can create a, and initialize a data structure in like Java. So I don't know, like, it, like you can definitely find ways to study without it having to be like a sit down, like two hour session, just me like typing away, solving problems and then looking at chapters for like two like two hours like you could you could easily block it up and just do it at different points during the day and that was something i did but yeah so with like the cs classes it was really hard really time intensive it was difficult so i didn't have time for a lot of extra other extracurriculars and then when it came to interviewing or job search like it's hard and i didn't get my first like job offer until i had interviewed with like 40 companies like three months into my search like i was almost almost done with like my first semester of junior year and it wasn't until i got my first job offer where i was like oh thank god like all i needed was one 
but it took a lot of time. Like those three months was just me consistently studying, consistently practicing, just consistently stressing about not only school, getting my grades, make sure I was on track to graduate, but also like, damn, I have to find an internship. Like, I mean, you don't have to find it, but for me, I was like, you get paid like a decent amount of money, like more than I can get paid any other summer job. And at the same time, I'd be getting something directly applicable to like what I want to do for the rest of my life. And I'd rather find out now if this is really like a path I see myself down or if this is just something like I think I like because I don't know enough about it or I haven't lived the day in the life of like an engineer yet to fully know if this is something I'm happy with. But yeah. You were always wired then. So you always had like the mindset like, okay, like have like you were always thinking long term pretty much. Yeah, I was definitely thinking long term. And, and like Brown was just somewhere where like you're just surrounded by so many motivated, studious people. Like you're just surrounded by some of the smartest people like all over the world, not just the U.S. Like there's a decent amount of just international students who are like some of the brightest minds of whatever countries or locations they come from. But yeah, so I think I think I fed off a lot about that. And I also was just like, it's only four years. I wasn't like, I feel like when I was younger in high school, I definitely wanted to go to the party school and like, you know, I wanted to have like the best four years of my life. But I quickly realized that at my time at Brown, I was like, okay, I'm not going to be getting that. Like this isn't, I chose the wrong school for something like that. So it's kind of easy for me to be like, okay, you know, it's not going to be like, I'm not going to have a party life. Like I won't be like living that like quintessential like life you see in movies where everyone's like, I got to college and live that. So I was like, let me just do something that is going to be a longer term investment, but I know it'll pay off. And that was just sort of something, it's sort of something you feel when you're like, like I said, first gen, low income, like a lot of my peers felt that way that it's like, you know, like we were given like one of the craziest opportunities to better ourselves and kind of move upwards in our lives. That's sort of the stuff our parents dreamed about and like the stuff our parents like worked so hard for. So in a way, I kind of also did it for my parents where I was like, you know, my parents sacrificed so much for me that I could take these four years to just kind of joke around, you know, be independent party like kind of live this life i always wanted to living inside like my parent like parents home but i don't know then another part of me was just like oh yeah but like i don't think i don't think that will lead to like long-term like happiness or like i like i know after the four years i'll regret having done that so let me do something entirely different that i'm not entirely sure how it's going to go and yeah i was like i'm pretty content with that decision i'd say it was definitely there was definitely a lot of times i like thought about it and was like, is this really what I want to do? Like, I'm like wasting these four years of my life in like the library, just studying, doing all these hard classes and stuff. But like I said, it was just a studious environment where it wasn't, I'd feel that way one second and then I'd see someone like having a mental breakdown in the library next to me because they're like pre-med and they like need that 4.0. And I was like, you know what? I can do that. Like if this person's here just crying, studying, grinding, like, I can do that. Like, I don't, I don't know. It was just the environment. I was just very motivated. I was like, damn, these people are going through it and they're still here grinding. Did you ever pull an all-nighter at the library? I did not. I did not. I was someone who, like, I valued my sleep. So I would just, like, i ditch missing friends. I'd eat, I'd eat my dinner and, like, my lunch in the library if I had to. But I tried not to. I think maybe the least amount I ever slept in college was maybe four or five hours. But it was, it was like, a Friday or Saturday night when I was, like, out, like, de-stressing, like, hanging out. Like, it was never because of scared. Gotcha. Yeah, there are people who like grab their blankets and pillows and like sleep on top of the desk of libraries. Yeah, yeah. That's crazy. I don't know how you do that. No, I was, I, was, I was someone who like, you know, I, I could just tell that if I did it for too long, I was just not going to be productive and I was just going to be stressing myself out. So I just kind of knew when to call it a night. Like if, if it would got to a point where I was just getting overwhelmed or I was just like, you know what, I'm not getting anything done. Let me just call it a night and try again in the morning. Yeah, honestly, really doesn't make sense to pull an all-nighter. Like, it makes sense because you have extra hours, but, like, you're dead. Like, you're pretty much half, like, half awake. Half yeah, like, the way I always looked at it is, that, is, like, yeah, you're using that time now, but you're taking away from some other point, either later this day or, like, later something. Like, some point you're going to have to sleep and crash, like. Was it the, was a lot of the, were a lot of them the um, international students pulling the all-nighters? Because at least how it was at my school. Um... I would say it's hard to really tell who was doing it, but everyone was doing it. There wasn't, like, a demographic, but I would say anyone who was, like, pre-med students, like, students who had to, like, get the 4.0s on, like, everything because, like, you know, they had aspirations for med school, and that's tough. Or the people doing, like, biomedical engineering, just, like, those hard majors that, like, just require infinite amount of lab time and an infinite amount of time of you just reading your textbook and doing all this obscure-ass stuff, like... I don't know. Those kids definitely had it the hardest, and we're just always there. 
at Brown, were those, were there the international kids who like drive around and like they're like Ferraris or like Porsches? Um, yeah, I definitely saw a Maserati and like a Bentley and like Range Rovers. I definitely saw a lot of those, but because Providence is just so small and like everything is a one-way street, like you never really saw too many of them. Every now and then you'd see some and like, I mean, everyone was aware that there were a lot of really rich people at the school. But I mean, you would you would definitely see the wealth a lot more in like the Canada Goose, like thousand dollar like Canada jack. Um, I mean, there just wasn't. What did you ever have a Canada Goose? Did you ever buy? No, one? Yeah. no. I mean, I could buy one now, but like, it just goes against everything that I was in like college. So it's like I don't want to be that person like, in my head. I was like, I hated the Canada Goose, like. I would never like on a suit yes on a candidate like you can buy like a calvin klein jack on ebay for like 50 bucks it looks exactly the same like that ne that never made any sense to me suit yes right. but canada goose like that's like hold on a second you're like a pushing way too far here but i have a question can we agree that dying hair is such a pandemic thing like everywhere i look who i've known everyone's pretty much died there i think for my nightmare i think you died here actually when we met the first time, oh, that must have been a lot. Yeah, I definitely, I, I dyed it after I had graduated from Brown. Like, oh, so, okay. And then maybe if you had met me when I had first been starting off, I probably still had the frosted tips because I didn't shave my head. Like, I just kind of let it grow out. But yeah, I recently dyed my hair again, and it's definitely a pandemic thing. I was definitely getting bored of just seeing myself in the mirror, just kind of look the same for like six months i was like the only other person like i had a couple friends i was seeing during the pandemic but like i was the only other person i was like you know what let me change it up let me change this look and so i did it and i also just saw a bunch of reddit threads and youtube videos on how to dye your hair and i was like how hard could it be like i've done it before but i had help from friends that i was like let me do it myself let me see what kind of results i get yeah i had a friend do it for me but i had just gotten a haircut and apparently when you dye your hair after your haircut it stings it's like yeah it's like, you ever use um, peroxide, like when you get a cut or whatever? It's that kind yeah. of fizzy kind of like feel of burns. Yeah. It's not, it's not really present, uh, pleasant thing. But I wanted to ask you, because I know that you taught English to, um, taught English, I think, what was it, during high school you did it? Yeah. yeah do you want to touch on that a little bit? Maybe why you did it and what you took away from that? Um. Yeah, so my parents were really big into like, religion they're like roman catholic and they're really into it and basically the parish for the church was like hey we're teaching some of the parents like some english so they can feel more involved in the community so so much the parish leaders or the people who host like the uh the catholic church classes like asked me like hey do you want to be one of our instructors and basically it was like a few of us and we were just setting up basic English lessons, teaching them like basic phrases, like basic how, basic how to order food, how to say like, yes, I want more. Basically breaking down maybe viral like YouTube videos, songs and stuff. Like I don't know, like we were just trying to give them a kind of uh, more of a grasp of like English and maybe the non-traditional ways of like teaching it, like more in like a cultural norm way for people to feel more immersed or just have a better understanding as to like the cultural norms of being in America, speaking English and sort of the culture around us. So we wouldn't be as secluded because a lot of the people at the church my parents went to, like my parents, they're immigrants. Like a lot of the, the community that goes to that church, all immigrants. So a lot of them, most of them had been here for a few years, but they're like every now and then there's a new family arriving or there's a new family moving over. And our church just thought it'd be something nice to do for them. Um, but yeah, I did that, and that was like pretty cool. This was like 2010, 2009, like a while ago. But honestly, I was like, I was like, why not? I kind of want to help people learn English. I think it's really valuable for people to learn English. And I just, I've always had a soft spot for like immigrant communities or just like immigrant families. And I'm always like, okay, what can I do to help? Or like, what can I do to make these people feel welcomed and more inclusive? And how can I make them feel less strangers in the environment they're in? So that's what I did. I mean, I didn't do anything crazy. Like I, like all we did was like I said. Like we just taught them basic phrases. We kind of have to teach them because the, like a lot of them were a lot older. So it's like a lot harder for them to learn new languages that we teach them something one week and then the next week they'd like forget it entirely or they'd be messing up on the way they said it. So a lot of times we'd just kind of be repeating the same classes like every two weeks and just kind of maybe trying to jazz it up a little bit. What kind of songs were you breaking down? Songs by Drake? Um, I think at one point we were we like, we kind of trolled around and we did 
condom style. And we were oh, like, these style? yeah, and we were kind of uh, like, we, we were like, we were like, this isn't really English, but people think it sounds like this. And we were kind of like, you know, trying to be funny and just like, I don't know, we were like, most of us were teenagers and we were just kind of like, oh, how can we make this fun? And the parents enjoyed it. I mean, a lot of them were like, oh, you guys are so immature and whatever. But we were like, I don't know, it was kind of one of those things. It's like, how do you understand popular culture when you're not from this culture? Like when you're not, when you kind of don't understand how these things are or why these things are funny. I mean, it was definitely a rural. What? That song's Korean, right? Yeah, it's Korean. Yeah, Korean. I think uh, he says something, and I don't even think it's English. It's just like it sounds English, and like you know, everyone is just like, oh, he's saying open condom style, and basically that's like our lesson was like that. It's like we were like, it's not English. It sounds like this, and we'd be like, this is this, and then we kind of tell them what it is, and then some of them would laugh and giggle and stuff. But I think that was one of the more memorable lessons I remember giving. But it was just a lot of stuff like that. Maybe we did Drake songs. Maybe we did Taylor Swift or whoever was popular at that time. We definitely would pick up just, I don't know, we'd Google stuff and we'd be like, okay, what are like top phrases for ordering food? Or like, what are the top 10 dishes in like America for food? Like, what do people like to eat? And we just kind of teach them what those words are and just basic, basic stuff like that. Now you did a lot of that stuff, like kind of like, I guess, lead was quote quote unquote leadership experience because you did um you were a student um well, what'd you do at brown this uh, diversity um leadership role you had there yeah so i mean luckily for luckily for when i was in college um schools started like like i definitely noticed it like more in my upperclassmen year like junior senior years that a lot of universities were put making more of an effort into diversity and inclusion and realizing oh we don't have that many people of color in our staff. Like we don't have that many women on our staffs. And so a lot of the departments at Brown were like, you know what, we need to create our own little like committee of students who can kind of help us either come up with new sort of standards for how we run our classes or new sort of ways that our committee should work for maybe when we're handling issues with that involve diversity and inclusion or even like hiring practices. So I don't know, I would say we were more like young, facilitators of like discussions that maybe all our white professors had never had before. And we were kind of expected to push these boundaries and just kind of be like, okay, you guys are people of color. What what would, what do you guys think would make this space more welcoming to you? Because Brown is like a predominantly white institution. So a lot of us, or oftentimes there wouldn't be, there, there, there were definitely a lot of times where I felt kind of excluded or I kind of felt like, oh, I didn't really? belong. I kind of felt like, yeah, I mean like there are definitely, I mean, now it's hard to remember, but I remember girl, I remember when I was there, I was like, damn, I'm like the only Hispanic person in my like 250 like person CS class, like stuff like that. Or like when I was a TA for one of the classes, I was the only like TA of color. And then other times I was the only Hispanic TA or like, yeah, crazy stuff like that, where I was like, damn, that's low-key kind of fucked up that that's how it is. But one of the things, one of the reasons I kind of took on that position was to give myself visibility and kind of for like the younger underclassmen, just kind of give them someone to be like, oh, like Anthony, like he's Hispanic, he's first gen, he's low income, and he's like thriving. He's like the TA of one of like the hardest classes we have here. Like, a stud. For, yeah, for me, it was just, it was more of like a signifier that anyone, could, like if I can do it, you can do it. Like, it. like if someone like me is doing it, like there's no reason you can't do it. And it was just also make myself visible to talk to like, underclassmen, give them life advice on like classes, careers, internship, what's important, what isn't, sort of how we, sort of the things we, we talked about a little bit earlier, just kind of for people who may be the first in their family going to college and they've never actually talked to someone about what is college actually like, or like, I've seen it in movies, is it really like that? Or like, how can I get a job? Like a lot of these things, like there aren't clear cut answers and like if your yeah. family hasn't gone through it, like it's definitely, it's a difficult thing to navigate by yourself and just you're the only one figuring all these things out as you go. So I was like, how can I be someone's support system or how can I help distribute information and knowledge to like other people like me so that people either learn from my mistakes or they just feel like they're not alone on this like journey. What's it like being a student TA? Do you get paid for that or no? Um, yeah, so you either get paid for it or you get credit. I, I did both. It was definitely like it's not as much work as being in the actual class or like taking a class. So that was like a nice credit to have towards my graduation and then getting paid. I think you get paid a little over minimum wage. So it's like, it's like a cool job. It's like you're putting something on your resume and you're getting paid for it, but it's not like 
it's not as like extensive as like a job. So it's like maybe every maybe like every three or four days I'm expected to do like one or two hours of work or something, or maybe I have to hold like office hours and help people. But I'm someone who likes helping people, so I always find that kind of fun. Like that was like an hour of just consistent human interaction of just me taking a break from the library and just helping like students in my class like solve problems or kind of disambiguate things that they thought didn't really understand like I don't know like I was there as both like a professor like a peer student just whatever they needed me I was there for and I really liked that I like being a wild card where I go from teaching to one moment to the next moment we're both working on a problem set together and I'm kind of guiding them through it or I'm kind of giving them hints and, and like I slowly see their faces light up and they're like oh like the second they put two and two together and they're just like wow you just helped me solve like this riddle or this puzzle like you just you were the gatekeeper that opened up this gate of new information for me or just a new understanding of things. It's like stuff like that I always found fulfilling. Or people just always being like, oh my God, Anthony, you were so much, like you helped me so much, like thank you. Just stuff like that. Like, you know, there'd be right before deadlines, students would come stressed in my office hours and I would just be like, you, like I'll help you, I'll help you, like just helping people as much as I could. And it was like an awesome feeling when people would get their assignments done and it was like, I played a small role in that. Speaking of help, how do you think that's going to work if, you know, some schools start closing more in the fall? Because again, I'm not sure if you heard, but a couple schools already closed, Notre Dame, UNC, they had in person, now they're closing to all online. How do you think that's going to work out? Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure. I can't imagine the planning and everything that goes through it. I mean, for me personally, and I'll, and I'll speak for colleges, like for high schools, elementary schools, like that's tough. That's like a whole different situation. But for college... To be quite honest, like a lot of my classes, I'd be in like there during lecture, but I don't think I ever was there for a full lecture. And was like, oh, I paid attention this whole hour and I know what's going on. I'd have to rewatch like our screen capture. So I'd say in a way, like a lot of the learning I did was online, and I'd rewatch like lessons, or I'd have to like where I'd pause it and I'd take notes, or I'd pause it and I'd be like, okay, did I understand that? So I don't know. And then I'd also just look at the slides, like in my free time, like when I was in a class, I'd just listen to the professor, maybe look at pictures or like slides with maybe general details. But I never really took notes in classes because I didn't find that to be like the way I learned. Like I wasn't someone who was like crammy, 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 just writing as fast as I could for an hour. Like that was not beneficial and nothing ever stuck with me. I was someone who was like, you know what, I'm probably going to watch this class like two more times this week for me to fully understand and just capture everything. So I don't know. So I feel, I feel like for some college students, especially if if you you're used to sort of like the the screen captures or like going back to like slides i don't think it'll be too much of an adjustment definitely the only nuance is like if you do rely on ta hours and stuff like that or you're like in a class where tas play an integral part of you succeeding and being able to get stuff done then it's going to be difficult and we'll see how things go with like zoom or like google hangouts or whatever schools are going to be using I think it's just going to be trial and error and figuring out what works and what doesn't. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's funny. I, I've never, like, especially during my classes, I've never understood the kids who kind of just sit there and write every single word on the slides, word for word. Like, I'm like, are you even understanding, like, what you're writing? Because, like, it's yeah, like, yeah. you're, like, speed, you're, like, trying to be, like, Lightning McQueen to try to get all the notes down. Like, you don't really yeah. know what you're writing. Yeah, I don't like. I tried it the first year I was at Brown, or the, even the first semester, and after that, I was like, "No, nah, this isn't gonna work." It's just I'm just wasting my time. I'm like cramping up my arm by like how fast I'm writing, and like it's like that. Like you said, like I'd write something, and then I'd be writing for ten minutes. I'm like, "Wait, I understood nothing. Like I, I've recorded nothing in my head of what I've just written down." So I don't know. I was just someone who kind of went to the lectures as like respect for my professors. I would just kind of sit there, try to try to stay try to understand as much as I could and kind of be in the loop as, as much as I could be. But it, like, honestly, we'd get to half the class and then I'd be like, you know what, I'm lost. Like he lost me and like, he's just moving so fast or they're, they're just moving so fast. I want to switch the topic back to, um, back to retaining talent. Cause I remember we had an interesting conversation about retaining talent. Um, so I think, can we agree that a lot of the top talent in tech pretty much just goes to the top tech companies, like let's, let's say Fang, so Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google. What do, what do you think banks need to do to attract more top talent? Or is it just because the nature of the work they do maybe just isn't as interesting? Um, from my experience at a big bank and then going to a tech company, I think it's a big part culture and just sort of 
the way your hiring practices work, your promotion practices work, and just overall stuff like that. Like, I feel like at big banks, it tended to be slightly more political than it is at, like, maybe other tech companies, and that there's definitely... There's definitely like a lot of other aspects you don't think about when it comes to promotion or just like getting paid bonuses and stuff like that, that a lot of the stuff is out of your control and you just kind of have to figure out how do I navigate things like outside of my work? Like, how do I get more visibility? How do I get put on like important projects? And oftentimes like, I, I, it, like depending on the organization structure of your company or stuff, it may be easy for you to like raise a complaint and it get to like someone who could do something about it. But then there's some organizations that just have so much hierarchy and such like a deep organization structure that you'll just be complaining, 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 and you'll never get to the right enough level where someone will listen to you and you'll feel like you've been heard. I also think there's just uh, like big banks kind of bank on like the name, you know, that you can say, oh, I work at this big bank. I work yeah. at JP Morgan. I work at Morgan Stanley. They can say stuff like that. And that's sort of another thing that's supposed to keep you around. And maybe like they're like, you know what, like we won't give you that much money, but like we'll give you a good amount of money and like we'll give you a name that you can associate with yourself. And for a lot of people, that's like another big thing. Like it's like social, like social currency or social value. Like there's so, there is some value to being to say, oh, I work here and here's some of the things I work about. And, like, you can be like, oh, yeah, I work at the company that, like, worked on the Apple card with uh, Apple. Like, or, or I work at the company that's, like, one of the best, like, savings account to leave your money if you're just a regular person. Like, stuff like that. Like, people people love being able to say that. Or people love being able to work on projects where they feel like they're working on something cool and exciting or something that's, like, making the press and news. I mean, people have different motivations. People have different things they value. But I definitely feel like big banks kind of rely on you to value the social stuff a lot equally to the monetary stuff. Me, I was someone who was like, I come, I come from like a very modest background. I come from somewhere where like my parents were kind of hoping I'd be someone to be like a breadwinner to kind of help gravitate their stresses about what they're going to do when they retire or what they're going to do about after they can't work anymore. So with me, I always kind of valued the competition or the value, the, like the company I worked for put on me or like what they thought I was worth. So that was always a big thing for me. And I definitely noticed that tech companies tend to have a higher value. They tend to have like higher respect for you as an individual. I feel like at the company I work for now, like I'm definitely micromanaged a lot less than I was. And there's definitely a lot more respect and trust in my independence than there was at the company I was at before. And the whole culture of just like, I don't know, like it feels like my new company just cares about me a lot more than my old company does. Where like I get free food, I get all these like commuter benefits, I get this like free health insurance. Like my other company made me pay for my health insurance, but this company gives me free health insurance. Then they give you all these other stuff that like, if you die working for the company, like not at work, but if you die at some point while you're working for the company, they'll give your kids up until they're 18 like a set amount of money every month as like uh as like a benefit that you you were working for the company when you passed away and like i don't know like it was just it was like a nice thing to know that it's like oh if i die working for this company like they're gonna like make sure my kids are taken care of like my family's taken care of and stuff like that like i don't know just like you know understanding hearing that things you're like wow like that's amazing that, that a company would do that i don't know i just started feeling very valued and it kind of reached this thing for me where I was like, damn, like I would love to work for a company that values me that much. Or they see that my worth or that me as an employee is this like important to them. So it seems like the, I think the, um, I think the things that maybe the banks need to work on is that they're too focused on why. So they're basically trying to market like why we're a good firm to work for. Whereas like tech companies are sort of like why we're a good friend to work for but also why you'd be a good fit here and how we can benefit you like they fill in all like the more boxes per se i guess yeah yeah i would say i would say the big banks definitely don't make it about you or you or their or your value to them isn't really one of the things that keeps you around it's more so their va their value to you is the thing but yeah and i, and I guess the other organization like the organizational thing about banks is like banks are incentivized to keep costs low like you know they're a bank like they're monetary like they're these people who are like efficient with their money so they're also like I don't know, maybe you're working on a cool, exciting project, but it's costing too much money or it's like going over budget or whatever. I, uh, they're not they're not, the, they're not the types to be like, oh, we've already invested so much, let's finish it. They'll be like, okay, like this is it. We're done working on this. Like we're gonna work on something else. And then sometimes you're like, okay, well, what, what am I gonna work on now? Like you hired me to work on this. What are you gonna have me work on now? So like I've definitely noticed that situation happening a lot more at like big financial institutions, which can kind of be like, I'm sorry. It can, 
it can kind of be like a little like depressing and like I don't know, kill your motivation where you're like, dude, I spent like two, three months on this, like just working, putting hours into this, just putting my best into it because I knew when it came time for like promotions or bonuses, this would be like a reflection of what I did and like the value I added. And for you to just eliminate that like on a whim because like we went over a budget due to poor whatever time management, poor people management, whatever the cause was, it's just like, it tends to like kill your motivation and just your whole like outlook on like, yeah, or your confidence in the organization. Now, you brought up an interesting point because you talked about micromanaged. And I was just curious if you think maybe banks are a little bit more structured than what they need to be, maybe like relative to like other firms. Yeah, like I said, I think it goes back to like when I was talking about the contrast between like the actual business side people and engineers. There's definitely this whole culture of just like you being productive the whole time you're there. And that's not how people work. Like we're not, we're not productive. Like we're going to have times we're lazy. We're going to have time we're very productive. We're going to have times we procrastinate. Like, I don't know. There's just this unrealistic expectation that you're just going to be this machine. That's just going to be producing work 24 seven or when like it's demanded. So I definitely feel like there was this expectation from a lot of my managers early on that I was just going to be at my desk. And if I wasn't at my desk, I had a good reason. Like I was in the hospital or something, or like, I just wasn't feeling well that I don't know. It would like I always like I feel like there's one thing at my old company. I'd feel really bad if I if I my coffee break was like five minutes over, ten minutes over, because then my manager would be like, "Where were you? What were you doing? Like, why were you out of your seat for so long?" Just this whole lack of like trust, or this whole lack that I was getting stuff done, or like that I was moving at a different speed. I don't know. It was just something that I was I didn't really like, and it kind of always rubbed me the wrong way that I like I was expected to just be on my seat, being productive, and I, I feel like there was no respect for like someone's humanity or just that they're a person and that people can't be expected to just be like working like a machine all the time. You think maybe it has to do with maybe a lack of perspective too. Maybe that kind of, because eventually they were at the position that we're at now or not we're at, but like maybe some of the um, yeah. analysts are, maybe they kind of look yeah. that kind of perspective. Yeah, definitely perspective. Definitely also, like I said, culture. Just people are like, this is how it's always been. Like, this is how you're going to go through it. Like, this is how it was for me. So this is how it's going to be for you. And yeah, I mean, I think I think one thing these those companies can do is just hire better, or not better, but managers from like these companies that do really well, or do a great job of like, keeping, retaining employees and asking these managers, okay, what made your old company be so good at retaining people? Or how did you guys keep everyone so happy or so content that they were able to put up with whatever the conditions were, the projects were. And I feel like they also like they, they lack the diversity of thought of like what other people are doing. They're kind of like, we've been doing it this way. We've been around for 200 years. So we're just going to keep doing it this way. Cause this is how it's worked that they're never like, they never stop to rethink the way tech companies are like, Ooh, how can we make this better? Like what are, what are our competitors doing that we should be doing as well? Like, I feel like tech companies are just so easy to adapt, so easy to just pivot. Like, you hear that word pivot a lot. And I feel that also comes down to the, the people treatment or the way they manage people, that it's also very similar, just something they're always adapting to. Yeah, I mean, definitely, I think as a whole, I think, I mean, I, th I personally believe that tech companies definitely are better at more like the relationship aspect of things, especially with their customers. They're really devoted or they really, they really understand um, customer needs and how to best serve them. And I think financial institutions are better at um, generating money and cutting and keeping costs low. So having right. nice and fat margins, if you want to, which I find pretty interesting. But um, I just want to, I just want to get your thoughts because we were talking about tech companies. Um, what do you think about Microsoft? Do you think they're going to buy uh, TikTok in time or Oracle in time or no? Um, we'll see. I, I personally use TikTok a lot, so we'll see. I, I think it's a really good app. I think the algorithm they built or just the ability for you to find new and entertaining things is like crazy good. Like I, I, I can't think of anything similar where I'm just always finding either new content creators or just new different types of maybe jokes or memes on such a rap. Like every time I scroll up, I feel like I'm finding something funny or something interesting to me. And even the way they kind of pitch their ads or the, the way they, they sell their ads, I see a lot more like things where I'm like, oh, like I'm hungry. And then I'll see Uber Eats ad or like a Grubhub ad. Or like, you know what, like I'm looking at like street fashion, like TikTok videos about people's street fashion. And all of a sudden I, I'm like, you know what, I could use some new jeans. And then I see an ad for like jeans or something. And it's, it's just, I don't know, it's just crazy. Even from the ads, like the ads don't feel like ads. It just feels like, oh, like, okay, bookmark that. That may be something useful. But I don't know, TikTok is just so easy to use, easy for you to create stuff. Like their whole system of you creating your own videos, they have so many different effects. 
the UI is very like intuitive. Like it's not that difficult. I mean, when you first use it, yeah, there's like a lot there, so you're gonna struggle. But like after you do it, like it's not that hard to have a quick workflow of just producing content. And I feel like it's one of the the one of the social medias, like compared to like maybe YouTube and Instagram, with the lowest barrier of entry for you to start just producing content on a rapid schedule, rapid pace, and just have it be pretty like seemingly like pretty like high quality. Speaking of algorithms, I find that point interesting because um, I'm not sure how much how often you use YouTube, but when they make recommendations, it's usually from like the same like fixed amount of like um, what do you call it? Um, YouTube creators. So it's like the same like five or six people, but just different. Yeah, I mean, YouTube has got its own way, but I I would say that, that it's kind of kept me in this bubble of using the same creators, while TikTok is like kind of like, in a way like a social graph, where it's like, you're here, how about how about these videos over here? Oh, you don't like those? Let's put you in in these group of videos over here. And it's just, they're always changing, always adjusting, and just kind of making my exposure a lot of different things like very wide but at the same time i'll see like the creators i really like or i'll see the ones that i'm that i spend a lot more time viewing like i'll see them show up a lot more but i definitely like the way they curate everything do you um so did you hear about um, instagram coming out with their own little tiktok reels yeah so the, i think they released it a couple weeks ago um I wish they would have released it in their own application. I wish it wasn't a part of Instagram. It already feels like there's a lot to Instagram, like when they release the stories and everything. And I wasn't truly convinced that Reels could be like, could live in Instagram. Like I thought Reels should have been its own thing. And then I think the publicity and everything would have been a lot better if that was the case. Cause one, it's like a lot of people didn't know it was there. Like I had to explain to my friends where it was. Like a lot of my friends had no idea it was there. Cause I made a reels and I was, do you guys see it? And they're like, what are you talking about? So I had to like show them where it was. I had to show them how you see it on someone's profile. And it was just so non-intuitive and it was just like so many barriers to get you on it that I don't think they know it. Like normally Facebook releases really good products like Messenger, Instagram, Facebook, WhatsApp. Like they have all of these like amazing products, but I think with reels, they really, they really missed a good opportunity. And just like an opportunity with all the embargoes and everything. and. President Trump being like, you guys can't use TikTok. Like, it's Chinese government. Like, it's like it has something to do with like Chinese servers. Like, we, we can't trust where your data is going and everything. And it's like, you know, that would have been the perfect time for Instagram to be like the leader in like mini videos, mini video content. Like, I don't know. I feel like they really missed the mark. Yeah. And so interesting you say that because I remember my friend the other day tried to send me like um, a DM of a reel and I was like, wait a second. It's not, it's like, I thought you had to go in like the app store to download it, but he sent to me on Instagram. I was like, wait a second. This is like just like another post. It's like one of those, like, you know, those long videos they have, what's called Instagram TV. It's like a shorter, like, it's like a clip of like an Instagram TV. Yeah. It's pretty much what it is. So it's kind of like, well, it's not really like TikTok because I don't have a TikTok to be clear. All my friends have it. They send me TikToks. But I just don't have it. I think I was I mean, too addicted to it. Or, I don't know if you should get it. You'll, you'll waste. You'll, you'll spend a lot of time yeah, on it. You're gonna I waste some time on it. And the reason why I know that is because I know. I'm sure you know Vine. I was on that constantly. I'm talking probably like seven, eight hours a day, which was wasn't pretty good. And so I was like, you know, I'm TikTok. I probably shouldn't get it. Honestly, I, I was a big. I was a big Vine guy back in the day. So um, let's say, let's let's give Instagram or Facebook the benefit of the doubt. Let's say it does take off and they get a bunch of, um, I guess it kind of takes off and they kind of gain market share in that space. What Do you think that's going to hurt them and like the antitrust kind of investigations are going through? I don't know. I haven't, I haven't been reading up too much on it just because, or I haven't been following it that much just because, I don't know. I'm someone who like, I see the value in everything or I kind of like how like, you know, let me take Amazon, for example, that I can just find everything on Amazon and that it's cheap and everything I want is there. Or like with Facebook that like I can just communicate with everyone and that I don't know, like I just see so many good things in the way things run now and it makes our life so convenient and so easy that I'm like, oh, but they do all this, all this. And they're like, if we were breaking apart, yeah, we make everything more competitive and we create a better landscape. But I feel like we're losing a lot of like, the, the like we're losing a lot of the non-friction we have in these applications and sort of the way things are running. And then I also work for one of the companies that's like in question right now, so. Yeah, exactly. Did you see, um, did you see the testimony? Um, 
I saw bit. I saw bit pieces of it. I think they had technical issues when I tried to watch it. Like I think Jeff Bezos, for some reason, yeah, the, the richest man in the world had poor internet or something. Imagine that worth over like what is he? Is he still worth over a hundred billion or is he under now because of the whole diverse thing? Divorce all I know Amazon. All I know Amazon just keeps going up and up and up. So. Yeah, exactly. I think they're what thirty three hundred a share. That's crazy money. Crazy. Did you see someone Zuckerberg's testimony? Imagine that, just spending five minutes talking about barbecue brisket. I didn't see that. No, I, I, I didn't see. I didn't see someone. I saw. I, I would say I saw some bits and pieces, but I didn't see. I didn't see that clip. Yeah. No, he just goes on, and um, they're like uh, five minutes to Mr. Zuckerberg, and he goes, "Hey, how's it going? I'm live from my backyard cooking some barbecue beef brisket." He just went on for five minutes. I was like, imagine that, like the CEO of Facebook, and you're talking about barbecue brisket at um, at um, at your testimony in front of Congress. He's living the life, honestly. He's in a few documentaries I watched. Um, you ever watched um, what's it called? The uh, terms, the terms and condition documentary. No, I don't think I did. Yeah, but um, what's it called? Um. Yeah, Anthony, well, um, let's end on a good note here. Huh? Okay, sounds good. Yeah, sounds like a plan.